Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> This is Democracy Sausage, which comes to you twice weekly with the support of PolicyForum.net and the prestigious Crawford School of Public Policy. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. There's a by-election underway in the once bellwether seat of Eden Monero. There's an escalating Cold War underway with China, on which Australia seems to have volunteered for frontline service. There's a resurgence of COVID-19 cases in Victoria. And there's a highly problematic economic and budgetary predicament to manage in which all manner of political as well as economic levers can be pulled, like announcing key funding changes to a university sector already being smashed by the pandemic. And while we're on politics, there's something of an event horizon in Victoria in which we see federal intervention in the state ALP branch after spectacular revelations of dark and nefarious practices. History, of course, has many examples of popular emergency leaders, usually regarding war, who have then proved less successful at managing the aftermath, the recovery. Leaving aside the possibility of a second wave, it's fair to say how Scott Morrison manages the next six months will be the determinant of his longer-term political success, maybe even survival. Public attitudes to politicians, parties and political institutions can shift, but which way? As always, I'm joined by my colleagues at the School of Politics and International Relations, Dr. Maria Taflaga. Maria, hi there. Hello, how are everyone? Also from that highly respected School of Politics is Dr. Jill Shepard, a political scientist who focuses on why people participate in politics, what opinions they hold and why, and how both are shaped by political institutions and systems. Jill works on the Australian Election Study and the World Values Survey, among other things. Welcome back, Jill. G'day, Mark. Let's talk about uh, some of the events that are, that are happening at the moment and I guess what they tell us about, um, about the attitudes 
uh, I guess from the uh, from the the government side, but also from the side of the electorate, from you know how people are receiving these decisions. And one of those I referred to in the introduction there was the uh, decision about the university sector. Maria, what does this tell us about? what the government thinks about universities. They say if you want to understand the government, don't look at what it says, look at what it does, or or perhaps don't look at what it says, look at where it spends its money and where it chooses not to. The university sector, of course, has been left out of uh, much of the, the protective uh, policy that's been put in place for the pandemic, and now we have this decision released uh, on Friday of last week, uh, uh, you know, which is going to change the uh, the, the hex cost of of uh, various courses, making the humanities more expensive in a number of the science and more vocational uh, aspects of uh, education uh, cheaper. What does that tell us about what the coalition uh, is thinking? I think it's not actually possible to give a straightforward answer in response to your your question. I mean, I think at the, at the surface level, basically what it says is the government has to deal with the issue of an increase in demand uh, by domestic students as they effectively seek to shelter in training uh, whilst the sort of recession rips through our economy or a whole cohort of students that might have otherwise chosen to earn money or go overseas who will now be going straight into into university. So the first is just a response to a to a policy problem. I mean, it's a well-known fact that there is a strain of, I guess, um, hostility to uh, certain sections of uh, the university, particularly, I guess, humanities departments um, within the coalition that has been there for a long time. Though, of course, you know, there are plenty of people in the coalition who don't necessarily hold that view. I think what is actually the most strange thing about this proposal from my perspective um, is that it, um, it, it purports to really be about incentives, right? So, Students will will look at the price signal on offer here, um, and then respond accordingly. But of course, the the government also holds up the fact that it's got its hex scheme as a way of effectively shielding uh, students from any adverse effects of a potential price hike, um, which sort of just is kind of contradictory. Like either either hex is an excellent policy because it effectively. Uh, cushions uh, students from worrying about the cost of university education and gets them to basically take up a deferred loan and go to university and improve their human capital and improve their earning prospects for the rest of their lives, or it doesn't. Uh, the second thing I think is just odd about the whole kind of argument about uh, the humanities in particular uh, is that it's not evidence-based. Uh, we know from studies that um, uh, humanities graduates uh, do better in terms of employment than uh, maths and a lot of uh, STEM uh, graduates. But also I just found like some of the arguments made by the minister himself just sort of bizarre. Like in his interview with uh, Frank Kelly last week, he he sort of kind of kept sort of emphasising that philosophy doesn't make anyone job ready. And the the thing is, right, is that it's actually really Often it's not really about the subject matter specifically about, um, especially when we're talking about the humanities. I mean, yes, there is no job out there or very few of them that, that is asking you to interpret Plato's Republic. It's the skill set you learn. And in a world of increasing and rapid change, humanities graduates basically take on 
generalist skills, which they can apply to virtually any setting. And depending on how much they lean into the social sciences, uh, they can become quite numerate. Uh, and they're very versatile workers. So it's just sort of odd, uh, really odd. Now that's my that's the polite way. <laughs> I, I think you've. I think that's a very comprehensive uh, deconstruction of it, uh, frankly, and I don't disagree with a word of it. It it strikes me that um, that the government is, you know, and I said this on Insiders that is not particularly well disposed towards uh, the university sector and and probably the humanities part of universities in particular. Um, they are the site that, that that is the place which produces people who you know, can do annoying things like point out that there is actually a slave history in Australia, that there were actually massacres, that some of the people that we've lauded as, uh, you know, essentially spotless individuals were, uh, you know, somewhere between, in some cases, between seedy and and, and outrightly homicidal. Um, and that, uh, you know, that this can be an inconvenient fact. And, you know, governments, I guess, on any side are, are never, you know, happy about about being told the the truth when they're telling another version of it, uh, but Jill, what's your view? Is this uh, is is this part of a a broader disposition to devalue the humanities, or is it uh, the instrumentalisation of education turning universities more into uh, a mechanism for servicing the economy, almost uh, you know glorified TAFEs? I mean, there's a lot of a uh, lot of emotion going around at the moment. But what, what's your view? Look, there's heaps of emotion and I think Maria's point about hex in particular you know the the whole idea of it um, basically making um, financial decisions about what to study um, fairly um, constant you know that this is what it's supposed to do it's supposed to mean that any student coming out of year 12 doesn't say well I'd love to do law but really they're too expensive so I'm going to go and do engineering the bigger thing and I think um, you kind of touched on this, uh, you know, in a sort of um, oblique way maybe at the end there, Mark, is, is this is about class. There's so much of this that's about class, right? And um, and this comes from both sides. On one side, we sit back as, you know, kind of humanities scholars. I would argue I'm more a social scientist than a, humani- you know, humanities person. But even that is such a a kind of um, esoteric distinction, you know, for me to say, oh, well, I can't lump myself in with a historian. I'm a political scientist and that's completely different. Most of the country doesn't understand this and they don't care. They don't know the differences. Um, but we do have this tendency, I think, as academics to sit back and say, well, the humanities have, have self-evidently made Australia a better place. Um, if I asked any of my family back home in Melbourne if that was the case, they'd probably disagree and say can you all get some useful skills um i am conscious that the the choices that we make with regard to what we study are almost completely um tangential to the to this kind of um this kind of decision this kind of policy and we're having sort of almost a sideline debate about the effect of these changes to the the hex contribution scheme, and um, and we're not sort of getting at the core. Is it so bad that that students do job market ready courses? So I have a point to make about that, and and it's and it's twofold. Like one, I just think that in many ways, demand for studying a subject is is inelastic. Like if you 
you know, exactly what you sort of said, Jill, like, you know, all oh, law's too expensive, I'm going to do engineering. Well, I might also just really dislike writing essays, so I'm going to do engineering and that oh, yeah. I will not be affected by a price signal there. Um, but I think the other thing is, is that universities aren't necessarily the best geared institutions to be training people for um, all aspects of the workplace. And there seems to be a, a growing insistence by government that, that we do. And the, and the reality is, is that the people who teach uh, in universities like you and me uh, spend a long time becoming expertise, experts sorry, in our subject fields in order so we can kind of teach and research in those subject fields. But we're not necessarily job-ready, work-ready training people that's not you know like we can obviously impart our knowledge we can obviously impart important skills around like working together in teams and being responsible and all of those kinds of things but there comes a place where business just has to bear the cost of socializing people into work that's that's a deeper point and I think probably well that's an easier argument to have I think at a time when the recession isn't so tight as well if we're asking if we're asking businesses to take on um to take on these sorts of external costs, um, you know, about job so- job socialization and job readiness, then you know, there's there's a cost to that as well. There's an opportunity cost in terms of um, the time that people, you know, that that managers and employers spend training. There's an opportunity cost to uh, to the salaries that graduates can make that they can't, you know, they effectively have to become like apprentices once they get out of universities. But I think you, you made the point much better than I did, Maria, and that's there There are two signalling mechanisms here, and one is a price signal, and then HEX kind of muddies those waters because it is deferred. And, and if you don't make enough money to just, you know, to, to ever sort of reach the threshold of paying it back, then you can effectively defer it forever. Now, people don't, but that's, that's the logic behind HEX. Um, and the second is the social signal. When Dan Tian gets up and says, uh, humanities courses won't get you a job i think that's a much more powerful signal to school leavers yeah i think i think you're right i think that's a that's a, a quite a powerful signal uh, but as maria was saying uh, it may not be right uh, there's not a lot of evidence Absolutely. that people out of the humanities are actually uh, struggling to get work and in fact there's research that shows that people who do have degree reputable degrees from um, you know universities in the humanities they have earnings over a lifetime of five hundred thousand dollars or more in excess of what they would have had they not got those degrees so there doesn't appear to be a whole lot of evidence if we look as you were just saying then Jill if we look at that price signal question as you quite rightly point out the point of hex is to essentially punt that whatever uh, you know price is associated with that education to punt it well off into the future which does rather remove its its urgency as a price signal and it is an income contingent loan as well so if as you say if you don't get to a certain level of uh, affluence you you don't start paying it back and that seems like a pretty good deal i think for most students but if they're being told uh, don't do this because the economy doesn't need you. You don't have a really very good chance of employment. That will probably be a more powerful signal. It just, it just, you know, one of the things you did say there, Jill, which was interesting though, is that uh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be, um, you know, too worried if universities have a, a close relationship with the needs of the economy. And I think that's right. Um, there's a lot of public money that goes into universities, and they are part of the of the society and part of the economy. There's a hell of a lot of money that's gone into propping up a lot of private capital over over the last few months. You know, 
tens of billions of dollars is being paid out to keep various companies afloat. And it seems to me that we've got some decisions being made here um, that there's a couple of things you can say about. One is there's not a lot of evidence as a basis for this policy. There's not a lot of lots being furnished. Um, and the other is we're talking about something a bit like HEX is a long way down the track. If you're looking for a kind of an economic lever to pull to change the labour market in the next 18 months, this isn't it. Oh, for sure. This isn't an economic policy. This is a an electoral signal that... Um, you know that the coalition government wants job ready graduates, um, and there's and as Maria points out, there's not necessarily any evidence for this. There's there's no evidence that um, if we have eighty percent STEM graduates, that it, you know instead of a, a hypothetical kind of composition of eighty percent um, humanities and social science graduates, that that's going to be any better for the economy, and that that's going to be any better for employment or anything else. That's that, that's absolutely ideological. So I, I just want to add on, build on what you've sort of been saying, Jill. Like you made a really interesting point about it being a class signal, and I can completely sort of see that philosophy, ex- you know, being punted out as the example. You know, no, right? I, don't, I think hey, my mentioned Plato. Well, exactly, and I think my parents. <laughs> My parents were already disappointed that I didn't become a lawyer, which they could understand what a lawyer does. They become a lawyer at the end of it. The idea that I was studying history and politics was already a bit disturbing. But if I had come home and said, I am studying philosophy, that would have been even more alarming for them. Um, but but what is interesting about your class marker is that there is um, there was research out last week that sort of showed that, that girls and boys do just as well basically in maths at school, but girls tend to do a little bit better in in softer subjects, in humanities-style subjects. And I think what is actually interesting about this policy and kind of reflects this sort of uh, dominance one way of uh, in, in gender terms of the kitchen cabinet of the government is that um, given that women are more likely to enrol in humanity subjects, given that the changes to the HEX scheme over the last five years to sort of tweak when threshold payments start, the, the interest rate uh, are all kind of um, more likely to kind of hit women pretty hard, particularly if they then take time out of the workforce to earn children so that debt continues to grow. Um, you know, it does look like a policy that may perhaps inadvertently actually disproportionately end up affecting um, women on top of a recession that is already, whether it's true or not, being billed as a pink recession. And that that may be long run a, a difficulty um, for them. But I mean, on this subject of being job ready, I mean, I think, I think that we need to be a bit critical about this. Um, and it's not because it's not because it's not a worthy aim or, or anything like that, but, you know, the function and role of a university isn't necessarily to um, make people ready and fit and able to be workers. Like, that's just not what universities are structured to do. If if the government wants universities to do something else, then it actually kind of needs to change the structure of universities, how it, how people like Jill and I are actually trained and what we're expected uh, to do. And, and further to that, like until quite recently, until quite recent decades, business assumed that it would have to bear the cost of socialising and training a lot of its workers. And it's sort of sought in the last sort of 10 to 15 years to defray those costs, either through internships or, or you know, by putting it onto TAFE or the education sector. And the reality is, is that with my background and my training, I am not 
the best equipped person to teach someone to be in a business. And I don't think any of my colleagues are because that's actually not what we're trained for. And so it's sort of um, ridiculous to ask us to fulfill the function that should be fulfilled by by businesses who should train people in how they want them to work in their companies. We can provide them with the subject content. We can provide them with a lot of the skills that they can apply and upskill. But the idea that we're all just be able to produce perfectly ready, job-ready students is, is, is a fantasy. I think people inside universities have a different idea about the purpose of universities than people outside of universities. I said universities That's too probably. much then. But, you know, um, does that make sense? I think it does. I mean, it's an interesting point too because uh, there. I think, uh, you know, we might sound a bit precious about this uh, and I guess we're making some universal statements about things that are, are, are particular as well um, because I think you'd say medical students who, uh, you know, are, are um, you know, elite level students in terms of their ATAR score and so forth who are going into uh, universities to uh, undertake uh, education and training are doing so quite vocationally. Um, they are likely to come out as doctors. They may be GPs. They may go on to specialised, uh, you know, specialist uh, disciplines. They may end up as medical administrators, or they may end up in public health policy positions. But overwhelmingly, you are training doctors, and that is probably true of engineers uh, and 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 some of the other quite uh, elite level functions of universities. So not not you know there is a vocational side to universities, but I think in the humanities we would say we're not necessarily training them for specific professions. We're training them in ways of critical thinking, uh, equipping them to understand the world in a very broad and liberal sense, and and to come out and 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 that. Pr- positions them extraordinarily well for a variety then of specialisations in the workforce. And it has an economic value. It's just not as directly linked as, say, architecture or medicine or engineering. I may be just very cynical about this. My daughter asked me on the weekend um, what I do all day. And and she's 13. She should know by now, but she never listens to my answers. And I said, and she said, you you know, you're you're helping people, mum. I don't know what you do over the course of the eight hours, but you really help people. And I said, oh, thank you, love, but really I think what I do is I make smart kids a little bit smarter. And then I felt like crying. I mean, and that's still a noble kind of goal, I guess, but you, um, I, I, I think I have a very instrumentalist view of what a university should do and sometimes I question, you know, I question the benefit to society of, of what we do as individual academics. God, don't tell my boss. Brian, don't listen to this. I'm very important, indispensable. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely critical, and to the economy. Look, let's Thanks, let's look, feel let, a lot better. Why don't we take a short break there, and we'll be back with you in a jiffy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. 
Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Jill, let's look at the, um, you know, we're sort of talking about, I suppose, the, you know, the kind of mechanical realities of this in terms of the relationship with society and the economy in particular. Let's look at the political dimension of that assumption. What does the research, uh, what do the studies show us about these kinds of economic considerations? Do people vote on the basis of economic rationales? Do um, and, and implicit in that is, uh, will they see this policy in those terms, but also will they make decisions in those terms? Or are there much more complicated things at play when people are making decisions? I'm, I guess what I'm getting at really is I see a similarity. They might be uh, decisions of different personal gravity, but I see a similarity between uh, someone making a decision as to what course they might do on the basis of uh, economic information like the fees and the income potential of that particular profession and people making political judgments about where they stand uh, supporting or not a government and what they do at the ballot box? Oh, but it's a great question. And and the the government here oh first of all sorry for the dog bark in the middle of that mark um, no, it no, wasn't, I'm all for it actually it wasn't me um, <laughs> the government I think here is working on the basis that people are making that voters are making that connection between university and economic outcomes um, we most of us vote and my students get very tired of me saying this and and um, they're right to get tired of me um, people vote mostly on the basis of how their family voted we're still very heavily socialised by part, by our family into being one party or another. It becomes part of our identity and that sticks with us and it's very sticky. It's like a glue that keeps us bound to that party. But when we do change parties, it tends to be on the basis of economics and jobs for most voters. Like here, you know, again, we're painting very broad brushes, um, you know, to describe things that are very singular. But, sure. you know, this is, a, this, this is not an exaggeration to say that most voters if they do move between parties, do so on the basis of who they think can best get them a job and if they have a job, to look after that job. And so this, I think, explains the coalition strategy here pretty well. They're saying we don't really, we, we kind of have this ideological indifference, you know, and that might be generous, towards humanities-style jobs. And here comes in the social signalling part of it. We're saying... You know, we're justifying that on the on the basis of you want your kids to get a job. Now, again, I've you know probably revealing too many conversations with my family here, but you know, I said to my daughter as well this weekend, you know, if you want a good job, engineering's great. She loves building furniture. I said, well, you know, there you go. And and so I've taken on this, you know, I've incorporated this um, kind of ideological, I guess, relationship between STEM courses at university and economic outcomes into my own advice to my family. Uh, And that kind of, of, uh, yeah, and that kind of uh, sort of contiguousness in a political message can be important, can't it? So it it seems to be consistent with the general government message and therefore it's it's got some credibility, at least with the framework of what the, the government is arguing. It's all about the economy, it's all about efficiency, it's all about growth, it's all about 
maximizing uh, you know our potential getting wage growth into the economy and all of those things are served by um, by lifting productivity by by valuing innovation by valuing entrepreneurship if it, if it all sort of fits together and that's I guess what the government would argue this policy does it fits into that general kind of oeuvre it's then, internally um, coherent absolutely exactly yeah no, I think that's Much exactly right. And, and I don't know what innovation means, really. I don't really know what um, productivity is. I know that people measure it and, you know, and that it's something about our, you know, how, how much, how hard we can work per hour's worked or something like that. But when you present it to me like that as a whole um, sort of self, self-encapsulated narrative, I, I, I buy it. Maybe I shouldn't. Yeah, and I suppose that goes to Maria. Goes to what you were saying about uh, you know if if you told your parents you were doing philosophy, they they would have they would have regarded that as, I mean it's it's a, it might be an abstract subject, but it's economically abstract as well. And their concern would be, what sort of a job are you going to get with that? Now that's that might be a uh, a particularly pertinent example for your parents, but it's a, I think it's probably as Jill says, what many parents think about generally speaking any. Uh, study that their uh, their kids undertake, they'd be thinking about where does that, what does that lead to? Yeah, I think that's absolutely um, right. And I think, you know, Jill's explanation of the politics behind uh, this policy is, is a good one. And I think the thing that the whole thing may actually turn on is definitely not um, whether or not the humanities will get a raw deal. Because I think, I think it's true to say that the average Australian doesn't really know what it is, doesn't really understand why anyone would want to study linguistics, what is even that, for example. Um, but the fact that it actually represents an overall cut to universities. So you'll be sending your kid to university and there'll be less money to teach them for each one of those students because uh, it does. this policy does ultimately it does like a lot of sort of moving parts and shifting cost, uh, costs around, but it does actually mean less funding for every single student. And that's the better argument that we can make as academics, that the more we, I think, navel-gaze about, um, you know, the relative merits of philosophy over um, physics, then we look more and more out of touch. I, I think that's true, but I also think that if we can't simultaneously um, justify the pursuit and purpose of the university that we may as well just go and become accountants or carpenters <laughs> or plumbers um, because, I mean, what you said about innovation was really interesting, Jill. Um, I've been working my way through the giant tome that is Malcolm Turnbull's biography and one of the things – or autobiography, sorry – one of the things that he kind of kind of keeps circling back to, but obliquely, is that everyone kept telling him to stop talking about innovation because not only did people not understand it, but it frightened them. And I guess that's what kind of worries me is that if we keep talking in this lowest common denominator, race to the bottom, instrumental kind of language, we will literally talk ourselves out of where where the global economy is going irrespective of what we like or not we will talk ourselves out of being at the cutting edge of the next waves of economic growth which you know are in creative spaces are in being able to apply general principles to specific problems are centered on innovation are 
you know, and we shouldn't be talking down institutions like universities, which have multiple functions. I think that's actually really important. Like, you know, they're teaching institutions, but they're also research institutions. If we reduce everything down to economic principles, we'll actually lock ourselves into the economics of the now. But even then, I think you kind of did that, you know, like it it is instrumental. I don't think it is lowest common denominator. It can be instrumental, but still really uplifting. And, and God, kill me for saying this, but kind of highbrow, you know? (laughs) Well, I I guess we have to talk at multiple levels. Yeah. Well, I think we do. We have to, yeah, and it it does come down to, I think, as you were saying, Maria, it does come down to that, the the difficulty uh, of, making the link between what it is that we do that is not so obvious, making that seem important. There is a risk always in this that we're seen to be talking our own book and and that always makes it hard to advocate a position when you seem to be motivated by self or sectional interest. Um, But we do need to be finding a way, I think I agree with you, Maria, that finding a way to, uh, to also sell the idea to communicate the idea that if you study a range of things in the humanities, that this will equip you for a very strong contribution to society and that that will have a very strong economic uh, you know, uh, factor as well. It's, it's, not, it's not one or the other. Uh, we do need to do both, I think, and there are some, um, there's some challenges in doing that because it's a, it's a less direct relationship than an engineering student might have with the engineering degree and going straight into an engineering firm and operating as a, as a new engineer. That's not necessarily what's going to happen to someone who comes out of a, an English lit degree. I think example. you both just made that argument really well, better than I've heard anyone else make it for the last week or so. Um, so, you know, job done. Well, uh, that's good because I don't think I made it all that well on Insiders <laughs> when I was on there and I, 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 it's been annoying me ever since. It's well, so, we did spend you, half an hour on it, so I'm not surprised we, we didn't make a job. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Well, that's all we have time for right now. So it's a big thanks to Maria Teflaga and Jill Shepherd who've given us such a terrific discussion today. I'll be back later in the week with DSX or Democracy Sausage Extra. And who knows, we might just bring you more of this very fascinating discussion. So until then, bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.